Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Fans, if you're into sports betting, BetOnline is where you should go to win money today. Whether it's live bets during games or futures for who you think's going to win the championship, BetOnline has all the latest odds, news, and information for all of your online sports betting needs. Visit the website today or use your mobile device to join and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. So before the next big game, head on over to BetOnline and start playing today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Welcome again, everybody, and thanks so much for checking us out. On this episode, Mark, we have a former player who carved out his own niche, all while having a famous father, and Gary Matthews Jr. continues to reach out to the younger generation, much like he did when he was a big leaguer. Mike, it's interesting, too. Uh, in, in these podcasts, we get people that grew up in the game of baseball, and their stories are way beyond what their career was. 12-year career for Gary Matthews Jr., but also... Little Sarge had the influence of what his dad's teammates were, and these stories are going to be so good, I can't wait to hear them. Gary, it's great to have you with us. 12 seasons in the big leagues, seven different teams. You make an all-star team, really nice career you're able to put together. But when you look back on it all, what do you consider to be your signature moment on the field? Yeah, th thanks Thanks for the introduction. Thanks for the kind words, but, but obviously... You know, it's funny, we, you mentioned 12 years and another four, four years in the minor leagues and you throw in my father's career and I, I probably, when I retired, had been in the game for 37 years and you have one moment, you know, if you're lucky that, that people remember you mostly for. And uh, I'll tell you what, I, I didn't get a chance to win a championship, but uh, the big catch that I made in Texas and robbing Mike Lamb of a home run that's uh, you know not not a bad second for a, for a memory that, that fans remember you for and you know continuously come up to me or they text me about or, you know they reach out on social media with their post and you know baseball fans are the best and you know it, it is pretty special to have a, a moment that fans continue to remember. Gary, let's talk about that moment uh, because uh, it's one of those things that you're watching highlights and everyone's so excited about seeing highlights every single night, whatever platform you're watching. But uh, I couldn't see it enough. I, I was like uh, rewinding, seeing it again. Uh, the, and obviously you think of athleticism that, that sticks out. But the monumentous uh, occasion of what it was because Mike Lamb was going for the cycle. And, and yeah. And you prevented that. Um, yeah. Talk about the scenario of what went through and your thought process with, with that type of play. Yeah, so Mike Lamb was a home run away from the cycle, but some of the details that fans and, and, and players may not know is that he had already hit two home runs in the series. So he came in along with the Houston Astros, really hitting well, was on fire and really locked in. And... I think Brian Corey was on the mound, hung a changeup out over the plate. You know, when a player is, is hitting well, when a hitter's on fire, you know, you, you're kind of, you know, ready for some action, if you will, probably playing a little bit deeper than I might normally play on him because he had been driving the ball extremely well. And, you know, it's a day game in Houston, in uh, Texas, in Arlington. So, you know, it, it goes during the day a little bit. And sometimes when it gets in that jet stream, it can get up and go. And so... Brian Corey hung a changeup, 
You know, he hit it extremely well. I knew it was probably going out of the park, but he hit it so high. I knew I was going to have a little bit of time to try and time it. And, you know, the stars aligned and took a peek, took a couple peeks. You check the wall and here you go, run up the wall and, and comes down into my glove. And I was so high up. I was higher up than I anticipated that, you know, you get that high up over the wall and you're like, whoa, you're ready for the ground to be there. And the ground wasn't there. You realize <laughs> how high you've gotten up and uh, you come down with the, the ball in my glove and you, you try and keep your composure back then with the game was different. There's a lot of bat flipping and chest pounding that goes on now, but you know, you just robbed the guy of a home run. So you want to keep your composure and show a little respect, right? <laughs> but in your mind, you're like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I just pulled that out. Unbelievable. Yeah, when you think about Gary, I mean, I think a lot of people have seen online, and that, you know, we're in the age of you YouTube, and you see the Japanese catch where the guy's got his foot on the top of the oh, yeah. of the wall yeah. and making yeah. the catch. Uh, those things are fascinating to me. I go back in the day, and and by no means am I talking about defense with my type of game, but uh, <laughs> Davey Lopes, our our outfield instructor, used to say, you know what, you do your drills, and then he would hit fungos right at the wall so you would get a little more comfortable with that this type right. of play though uh you're typically jumping up and trying to put your glove over the wall this aspect is is totally different because you have to position yourself where you're putting that your, your cleat into the wall yeah. and then you're trying to get a little bit more height what was the thought process of, of how you reacted or was it just a natural reaction of I knew where I was on the field because it's my home yeah. field. Uh, but what was that reaction to you? Yeah, you just mentioned Davey Lopes, one of the best, right? Like he yeah. was one of those guys that, that really helped prepare the outfielders and especially for young guys, Mike Dar and I, to get used to that kind of soft baggy wall mm -hmm. that we had in, in Qualcomm when I first came up. Uh, this wall in Texas much kind of more modern wall where it was hard, still padded, so you can get some grip, you know, running into the wall. You got a running start, and you can kind of climb up up this wall. And so I, I had a fair idea I was going to, you know, be able to take a shot at and climb the wall. It was so high, I knew I was going to have to climb it. The The most difficult part is probably not only timing your your highest point to where the ball is coming down, but making sure that you pick the right spot on the wall to climb up, right? Like if I pick the right spot on the wall, wrong spot on the wall to climb up, you know, I, I could be maybe, you know, two or three feet to my right, two or three feet to my left. And so I, you know, when I say that the stars aligned, it, it literally, there, no doubt there's athleticism involved and timing involved, but, but I picked the right spot on the wall to climb up and, you know, everything worked out for, you know, yeah, maybe I mean a, a foot, in either direction, right? Picking the wrong spot on the wall to climb up and, and I don't catch it. You know, I appreciate the humility, but to be honest with you, that was like the defensive equivalent of the Hail Mary. Right. You were going, and, and especially, I mean, you're talking middle of the year. Wasn't like you were in a playoff situation. Yeah. The adrenaline you yeah. brought to the table when a lot of guys would have been like, eh, that one's gone and kind of maybe half, giving it half the effort. It was really remarkable. And I would implore, uh, that's a strong word, I know, but I'd implore our, our <laughs> listeners to get over to YouTube and check this thing out. The Gary Matthews Jr. catch yeah, uh, in a, 2006. It's unbelievable. It's a good one. You know, when I was a kid, I, I can't remember what the specific year, but it had to be 70 between 77 and 79. 
my dad was playing for the Braves in Fulton County Stadium. Dave Kingman was playing for the Cubs, and Dave Kingman was big home run hitter at the time, probably 6'6", put together, you know, big boy, right? And maybe the, the Mike Stanton of his time. And Dave Kingman hit a deep drive to right center field. My dad ran back, timed it great, and made this unbelievable catch really similar to mine. And I happened to be in summer on summer vacation at the time. So I was at the game for that catch. And, you know, that catch, it never left my mind. Obviously, my, my dad's best catch of his career. And, you know, who would have thought you fast forward to 2006 and I make this unbelievable catch. And my son had to be maybe eight or nine at the time and happened to be on summer vacation and was at the game when I made that catch, uh, robbing Mike Lamb on the home run. And I remember going home that night and remembering <laughs> my father's catch. My father and I talked about it and, and talked about how I was sitting in the stands in the family section when he made that catch and how ironic it is and special it was that my son was, was there to see the same thing. It was unbelievable. My son watched ESPN all night. Yeah. night. I, I, had to, <laughs> I had to pry him off of ESPN because he kept watching the catch, wanted to see the, the catch on the highlights on the next show and peeled him out of uh, off of the TV screen probably around 12 a.m. so he could finally get to bed. He and my he and myself included too. I, I was watching it like nonstop too, man. I was like, I, I, I was a proud uh, proud fan too that night. What was your dad's reaction uh, when you talked to him? What, what was that like? Oh, he he was almost in disbelief. He said, "It looked like you had it timed up really well." He's like, "Did you did you really have it timed up, or did you get lucky?" Tell he wanted to know. He's like, "Did you get lucky, or did you really have it timed up?" I was like, Dad, I got a great look at it because he hit it so high, right? So I had time. You know, if he hits that ball on a line or a little bit lower, I probably don't have time to get back there. But I told my dad, I said, you know, he hit it so high. It was a hanging changeup. He hit it so high. I kind of had plenty of time to get back there, you know? And if you watch it, you know, I'm, I'm high-tailing it back there. Yeah. It seemed to be just about, you know, perfect, where it was just high enough, where I had enough time to get back, time it to climb up the wall. But if it's, if it's hitting lower... I probably don't have the time to get back. You ever talk to Mike Lamb about it? I'm sure he was less than thrilled. You know, ironic. I was just in, uh, so I live in Orange County and I was playing golf at Coto de Casa and I ran into a friend of his at the club who gave me his phone number. So I spoke with Mike. We talked about the catch and, and how we seem to be, you know, linked, you know, not only during our the era that we played in by by playing during the same time, but this amazing moment through through this catch. And so we we had a conversation over the phone about it probably a month ago. And you know, we just talked about how special it is that, that people remember us for this moment that's that's positive and and amazing, right? It's such a small moment when you think about all the work players put into the game to get to the league, to prepare to play and and to stick around, uh, hopefully 10 or 12 years if you can, some players 15 years. But it seems to be like these small moments that fans connect with and remember you for and, and how special it is that that fans still remember us from that moment. Yeah, go ahead and check it out, folks. If you're listening to uh, YouTube, it's an unbelievable play, Gary Matthews Jr. Uh, back in 2006. 
You mentioned a moment ago, Gary, about the time that it takes to get to the big leagues, never mind have these particular moments, but you got the call-up in uh, 1999 with the Padres. You were a 13th-round pick a handful of years earlier, 93. Uh, what do you remember about getting the call? Who told you? What are the stories around that? I I think I was in AAA. I think it had to be in June. And and I really hadn't gotten off to the best start in, in AAA that year. I, that year before, I played in AA and – was off to an amazing start, hitting around 400, and, and had heard some whispers about me possibly coming up uh, straight from Double A. But I unfortunately I got hurt, and and then so the next year I you know I missed probably half of that Double A season. So they promoted me, moved up to Triple A, but I really needed a, a little bit more seasoning. I was probably missing, you know, at least a half a year to a year of experience in in playing at the higher levels. But nonetheless, I got the call. I, I got got off to a slow start, but got rolling and got things together. I think there were a couple injuries in the big league sometime in June. Ruben Rivera might have went down. And I think maybe one of the infielders went down. And so Dave Newhan and I got the call together. Dave Newhan was a middle infielder, second baseman with a, a kind of a left-handed bat, had some pop could play some defense a little bit. We both got called up together that day and hopped on the plane. I think Mike Ramsey was a manager at the time. And Mike had managed me in double A in the previous year. We had won a championship in the Southern League. And so to get that call from, you know, Ramser, we called him, Mike from Mike Ramsey was uh, was pretty special for me. And what, what who was the first call you made after you found out the news? Oh, man, probably probably my dad. I probably called my dad. Um, you know, when you think about, you know, for me, I took so much pride in, in getting to the major leagues, how I approached the game. It, it really meant something to me to be literally and figuratively following my father's footsteps. Uh, you know, I took a lot of uh, a pride in the way that I approached the game, the way that I played it. Uh, I knew that I just, I wasn't playing for my own legacy. I was playing for my father's legacy as well. It was something that I'm continue to be proud of to this day. But you know, I would never want to do anything uh, that was going to embarrass his legacy. Anything that was going to tarnish it in any way. However, you know, big his legacy in this game is. It was something that I'm still to this day very prideful about. And so I played the game the right way. I prepared and played hard. And so to make that call to him. And, and tell him that I finally made it, right? That I've made it on my own accord through hard work, dedication, uh, perseverance, and, and literally, as you know, blood, sweat, and tears. It's such a proud moment. And Gary, you, you think about it too, from our listeners' perspective, uh, the first thought is uh, uh, how much of that pressure of coming up after a successful career that your dad had, um, those pressures are real. Uh, how did you handle those? Oh, for sure. They, they are 100% real. And one of the really cool things my parents did for me at a very young age was they separated family from the game. Uh, the baseball was my father's job. My mother explained, like, listen, this is the family business, but the most important thing is family. And so 
the game is, you know, look, there's fame, there's money, there's all this uh, attention, and it's a blessing to be involved with it. But the, the realest things we have are, are each other and our family and that relationship with family. And so when I started playing, my parents made it clear that there is the Gary Matthews Jr., uh, the person and family member, son, brother, right, friend, and there is Gary Matthews Jr., the player. And while this, you know, playing the game is amazing, it's going to create all these great experiences for you, your dreams are li literally coming true, there will come a time when this ends. And so when your parents kind of set that up for you at, at 10 or 12 years old, um, it, it gives you, it kind of gives you an opportunity to see that, like, look, this is great, but at some point this is going to end. And fortunately for me, I remember when my father retired. And so, um, you know, without going off the deep end, you know, I, I really want to take the fans kind of behind the scenes. When my father retired, probably six months into retirement, <clears throat> he shared with me how difficult it was, how you go from everywhere you go, everyone knows your name and people cheering and, you know, six months into retirement, he was really missing the game and realizing that, you know, his career was over and coming to that realization. And so it was, it was difficult for him. And I was 14 when we were having this conversation and I'm so thankful for it that my father was open and honest. And so my father decided to go see a therapist and, and work, work with a therapist and talk about his feelings, talk about uh, why it was difficult, talk about how retirement was making him feel and to deal with all of those feelings. And so after hearing that at 14, I'll never forget it. I was heading off to school one morning when he pulled me into the office and said, hey, I wanna to talk to you about something before you go to school. And so we, we had this really intimate conversation. And, um, and so after that conversation, I understood that, okay, well, at some point, when I'm ready to retire, when I feel like maybe it's I'm towards the end, I'll sit down with a therapist also, right? Like this is, I saw it no different than a hitting coach, right? Than a, than a Merv Rettman, right? Or a, a Rudy Jadamillo, right? A, a pitching coach, right? No different. And so a trainer that we would use during the off season, a speed coach. And so as I, kind of got further along in my career around 37 and I started to have those feelings like maybe it's time to retire. Maybe I, I, I think I'm ready to move on to the next thing. I did the same thing that my father had told me all those years ago, 20 something you know, years previous when I was 14 years old. And so I, I utilized you know, those, those skills that my father taught me and I, and I saw no shame in it, but it is such a help and that's something that you know we don't talk about enough. That how difficult the transition of of retiring is, whether you know, whatever it is, right? Whether you're a fireman, whether you're mm -hmm. a physician, there is a, a transition that takes place when you get ready to to leave that that line of work. I think adding to that quirk, Gary, is the fact that when you retire as a player in real life, you're a real young man still. But you're closing the book on a chapter of life that a lot of men and women out there don't really close until they're, say, 60s, 70s, you know, in that range. So it's a whole different dynamic because you have a lot of life still ahead of you. Let me ask you this. You sure. brought up the notion that you had all of these tools, um, mental 
skills that a lot of players don't have. You had the father in the big leagues. You had the retirement speech. You worked your way up. You thought you were up in the big leagues maybe a little bit earlier than you expected. You're 24 years old. I want to stay in that 1999 rookie season uh, because you walk into that clubhouse armed with all that knowledge, yet you're going into a clubhouse that had just gone to the World Series the year prior with Bruce Bochy and his Padres. Yeah. You have a big experience mm-hmm. lineup. You still have Tony Gwynn Jr., the future, or Tony Gwynn Sr., I should say, the, the future Hall of Famer um, in that clubhouse. What was that like for you, even though you had some tools young guys don't typically have in those scenarios? Yeah, to be really honest with you, I was really, really comfortable around these guys. And, you know, it was a really, really good team, right? Like a great team. And when I signed in, in 94, I'll kind of give you a little bit of background. But I signed, I was drafted in 93 and I opted to go back to college. So I felt that I could be better. And I went back to college for my sophomore year and was, had anticipation of going back in the draft, played really well that season, became a junior college All-American and was set to go back in the draft. And before the draft, my dad approached me and said, Listen, I've been thinking about the draft coming up. I know San Diego owns your rights up until 24 hours before the next draft. My dad thought that I should sign with the Padres because this organization, these these players who were in the big leagues at the time were in their prime. My father figured four years from now, when you are you know knocking on the door to the major leagues, you know, these guys will be almost on their way out. And you can you can come up in San Diego in a smaller market where there's not a lot of pressure. And as a young guy, 19, sophomore in college, I'm I'm just coming out of being an All-American. So I was ready to, you know, cash in and get some money in a draft. And, and so my dad said, listen, I, I think this is the right move. And so, you know, trust what I'm telling you. Do you, do you trust what I'm telling you? I said, absolutely. Yeah. I said, okay, so we're going to sign with the Padres. And so I took... I think I signed for $60,000. And, you know, this was around the time where, you know, guys were starting to get, you know, million dollar contracts. And, you know, certainly I would have been somewhere in line for somewhere between half a million to, to a million in the draft. But just as my dad predicted, when I got to the major leagues, you know, some of these guys were, were getting older, but, but still, you know, in their prime, right? Because at the time, you know, player, veteran players were playing longer, but my father was right. And so when I got to the major leagues, there were the, the Tony Gwynn's, the, the Ricky Henderson, Reggie Sanders, Greg Vaughn, Mark Sweeney, right? Like Andy Ashby. Uh, you know, these guys were uh, Dario Veras, right? You remember Dario? Right. When you talk about, you know, a group that was tailor-made for a young guy like me. Uh, you know, look, I, I believed in my talent, but I knew that that I was to come in and be humble, to, to listen, to work hard, and, and to ask questions if need be. And my father was 100% spot on. There couldn't have been a better organization for me to enter the big leagues in, uh, you know, from top to bottom. You know, when you think about that ownership group of Larry Lucchino, John Moores, and then it trickles down to the, the Tony Gwynns and Bruce Bochy, uh, Merv Rettman and, and the staff, right? Tim Flannery. The organization was top notch and it trickled down to, to all of the players. And, you know, when I got to the major leagues, uh, Tony Gwynn, 
uh, I can't remember our, our clubhouse manager's name, but Tony Gwynn had him clean out his one of his two lockers, right? Tony Gwynn had a locker for his gear, right? If you remember, yeah. And then you know, Hall of Fame, you know, superstar. He had a locker for his fan mail, right? Right. He had those two lockers, and so they cleaned out his fan mail locker and they put me in his extra locker so I could watch how it was done to see how uh, a modern and, and generational great performs and prepares every day. And Mark, you know that as far as preparation and planning, very few are, are matched by the great Tony Gwynn. He was just, he was amazing. And so to literally get to the major leagues and and be taken under his wing and watch how he performs, how he prepares, his level of conf confidence, how he interacts with the media, how he interacts with teammates. It, it couldn't have been a better spot for me to land. Uh, now, look, if you see one downside, the downside would have been that, you know, this team was locked and loaded, right? Coming yep. out of the World Series in 98. So I was getting no playing time. I was, uh, I was coffee boy and defensive replacement <laughs> for, <laughs> for my first couple of years there. But I have no regrets. I mean, every young guy would love to come up and play right away. But to learn from such an experienced and really good team and from a top-notch organization, it really set the tone for the rest of my career. I'm, I'm thankful today for uh, my father kind of guiding me in that direction when you know most kids and most parents would just be going for the money. My dad really thought about the organization that I was going to play for, and he thought about the city that I would be starting my career in. Gary, I thought it'd be nice to, to paint the picture for our listeners, uh, realizing, too, uh, you talked about the locker and presenting uh, where Tony Gwynn's locker was. It was right next to the film room, the video room. Um, yeah. so you next to him, I, I mean, that was almost like, uh, that, that was royalty over there oh. in the corner, which Rich really represents what he thought of you. And why I say that is that he was quoted in saying and put more pressure on you is that you were designated to replace him when he was finished. Uh, that's, that's a daunting statement coming from a hall of famer, a guy that, uh, was a wizard with, with the bat. Um, how did that make you feel? Because, uh, you know, hearing it from another player, I'm like, wow. I, I mean, sometimes that's the general manager, but I think Tony Gwynn's probably a little higher yeah. on that hierarchy yeah. uh, to be able to make that statement. Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, I didn't, I mean, first of all, it, it's so flattering to hear that, right? Like, I really made sure that I didn't read the papers then, you know, I didn't even watch a whole lot of games, right? Like I really wanted to, this game is hard enough. And to add the pressure of, of replacing someone who, who is unreplaceable, who mm -hmm. replaces the great Tony Gwynn. And so, listen, I, I would hear whispers of that, but I wasn't mistaken. No, no one replaces Tony Gwynn. And so, you know, and having the comparisons from, my father's career, I understood that, I understood who I was, not only as a person, but as a player. Uh, and even at a young age, I understood my strengths. I understood my weaknesses. I was honest with myself about what I needed to improve on. Uh, I think the difficult part was gonna be how to 
continue to develop and how to figure out how to improve on those weaknesses and apply the things that we were being taught as hitters and apply it to what I do best. That is a thing that, that really takes a while for young guys, especially when you're trying to make that, that adjustment at the major league level. It, it's still the hardest, the hardest thing in a game to do. Hardest thing in sports, in my opinion, is to, to hit a, a round object, a round ball, the round bat. And, and so, you know, I took it all in stride, I, but I wanted to soak it all in and, and learn as much as I could from, from everyone. Not only Tony, but but everyone, right? Like I really listened. I I watched a lot, and and having grown up in the the seventies and eighties, and, and you know a really strong strong time during during baseball, you know I was just used to watching some of the greats and trying to pick certain things that some of my favorite players did, and um, and kind of apply it to what I do, or you know copy these these players when I was a kid, you know? And so all of that work and all of that information that you take in as you get older and, and you know, at this time, 24, I'm able to process and figure out how all of these things apply to what I do well. Gary, but, you got uh, some... But to an answer your question, no room, no one replaces Tony. Right. right? I, no one does. It, it, but I, I thought it was really cool uh, the way he presented you and, and had so much trust in you. Um, I do, this podcast is all about first and we don't want to get away from that because these are moments that you'll never forget. What do you remember about your first hit and your first home run? Because those are special moments. Oh, wow. <clears throat> so my first major league hit is, is actually sitting on the wall uh, behind us somewhere in one of these balls. Uh, my first hit was, was in in San Diego, in Qualcomm, I had started, I think, the Friday night game. And then I might have had the second game off. And then I played the day game. I was 0 for my first two games. And look, I don't care what anyone says. You know, you can be as prepared for the major leagues as anyone's ever been prepared for. But getting to the major leagues on your own and that, that first single at bat, you know, there were some nerves, right? Like I, I remember, you know, even driving into the stadium, like I was, I was fine, right? I spent so much time in that stadium. Uh, it was Jack Murphy Stadium yep. when I came up, right? But we lived in Los Angeles, so we would make the drive up with the family, watch my dad play in, in uh, different series throughout his career. So I had spent so many nights and so many days in that stadium and was familiar with it. And I was familiar with the team. I'd been on the roster for two years at that point. But when you step into the box and you hear your name called for that first time, <laughs> those nerves kick in and, and you know, your knees shaking a little bit. You got to step out of the box and compose yourself. You're like, whoa, what is going on here? Like I've done this, you know, hundreds of thousands of times. And, you know, but, uh, you know, I think it's the adrenaline and the excitement uh, of, of being knowing that you're there and that you've earned it. And, uh, and it was a day game, and it was a line drive off of a you know sinker that, that was up two seam fastball off of oh gosh I should I should remember this let me Freddie Garcia look back here yeah there is Freddie Garcia yeah Freddie Garcia right hander you know kind of sinker ball pitcher but you know kind of long and lanky he got a fastball up out over the plate and I hit a line drive clean 
clean single to center field. And, you know, it's always nice to, to get a hard, <laughs> clean hit for your first oh, yeah. major league hit. But it, it took me two nights to get it. <laughs> I remember, you know, what? something else I remember. I remember rounding first base and, uh, and going back to first base. And Tim Flannery was the first base coach at the time. Either the, yeah, I think he was the first base coach at the time. He shook my hand. He said, Junior, congratulations. Great to see you here. First of many. Let's yeah. get to work. Yeah. You know, first of us. Th- like you, you never forget. Right? For, so, so special. First of a, a thousand fifty six of them, Gary. That's thousand, a lot of hitting, buddy. It, it is. You know, listen, no, no one will ever accuse me of being Pete Rose. <laughs> but uh, but to get over a thousand is is pretty special. And you remember the first homer? The first homer, I think my first homer. Gosh, who was it off of? I, I should remember this. Don't don't tell me. Was it? Might have been off of Bruce Chen. Maybe That's I think exactly I hit my first right. homer. Yep. Off of Bruce Chen, left-handed pitcher. I think it was in in Atlanta. And I've got another great baseball story for you surrounding my first home run. So we are playing in Atlanta. And by this time, I think it's maybe a a year later. I think I've been traded to Chicago by, by this point. And uh, you know, the the Padres were, you know, debating there, there wasn't going to be room for Mike Dar and I both. And they were debating. I was a little bit older. I think I was two years older than Mike. So they decided to keep Mike. Mike was coming off of a great year in AAA. And so I was traded that next spring in 2000. But talk about a dream come true to get traded to the Chicago Cubs and play for an organization that my father played for. And so that next year in 2000, we are playing in Atlanta and I'm facing Bruce Chen and had a great at bat off of him. And I think it was a 3-2 count. I think he tried to get a fastball up. You know, he was a fastball curveball guy and would throw the, the curveball off of the fastball. So he just thrown a curveball in the dirt, kind of loopy curveball. And then he threw the fastball uh, off the top of it. And I, I caught him slipping in a dead center field. But um, fans would, would be excited to know that such a cool story. When my dad was a free agent and he signed his deal, uh, free agent deal with Atlanta in 77 or 78. My uncle Henry, part of his contract was that the Braves would take my uncle, uncle Henry and teach him photography. Uh, and even though my dad only stayed there for maybe four years, my uncle Henry stayed on with TBS and not only, you know, became a, a photographer, but came, but became a videographer uh, as well. And so he was a cameraman for TBS, you know, throughout my career. He just retired maybe seven or eight years ago. So my Uncle Henry was the home plate cameraman the night I hit my first home run. Wow. And so I have video of, of not only, you know, me rounding the base, rounding second base after my, my first home run in the big leagues, but my Uncle Hen- Henry panning, panning me on uh, on camera and pumping his fist at the same time. There's so <laughs> many special memories that I've been fortunate to have in this game. There's just, there's countless. But, you know, when I say that, you know, literally my whole family has been involved in the game in some way, shape or form, I'm, I'm not lying. Uh, my uncle Henry, who's, who's great. He not only 
filmed the baseball, right, for the Braves, but he did uh, uh, WWF, he did IndyCar, NASCAR. You know, he's just unbelievably talented, and, and he's sitting in Atlanta right now enjoying retirement. What a special moment for Uncle Henry yourself. I, I mean, I, I love the fact that there's so many different layers to great stories, G. I mean, uh, uh, yeah. listen, uh, this baseball game is so special in so many ways, and that's why we have so much fun with it. Um, speaking of photos, um, I think a big thing, and especially the way you were raised in the game, that rookie card had to be extra special for you. Did you collect uh, yeah. when you were younger? And what do you remember about your first rookie card? You know, I, my brothers and I collected all the cards and, you know, you would probably remember this, Mark, but during spring training, that year's cards would come out. And so there would be, you know, this was during like, you know, the 70s, 80s, you, you came along a little later, but <laughs> they would still release, you know, the top cards and the clear cards, there'd be a, a stick of of hard stale bubblegum in there. My <laughs> brothers and I would open these cards and try and find our, our favorite players. And, you know, we trade them. And, you know, because it was spring training, if one of those players happened to be coming in, you know, we'd catch them. We'd go over to the visiting clubhouse when we had time when batting practice was over and, and nicely ask them to sign it. And, you know, the, these players, they know who you are. So they, you know, they're always, you know, really sweet to you, really nice to you. But, you know, there's nothing like opening up a, a pack and seeing your face on it for the first time. Um, you know, my relationship with, with the game in general is, is lifelong. And so I've got a really, really good card collection. I, I should probably go through it. My son was telling me maybe a couple months ago that, you know, we should create some NFTs out of your baseball cards. <laughs> you know, like, you know, we talked about technology before we got started mm -hmm. here and just, you know, how it evolved and connected the world. But, you know, now baseball cards are creating value again. And so that seeing yourself on a card for the first time is, is pretty special for any player. And I think the first rookie card I saw was maybe an upper deck card, which was really cool because at the time, you know, upper deck was like, the Apple or the Tesla right. of baseball cards, right? <laughs> and so to, to see yourself on that that glossy, futuristic card, you you literally felt like you made it, right? Yeah. Did did you have a particular card from maybe one of your dad's teammates? Because I could imagine two things. One, I'm thinking you grew up. Obviously, your dad was a hero of yours. But a lot of young players who grow up with fathers in the big leagues kind of gravitate towards some of the other players on these teams. you have any favorite uh, teammates of your father's cards maybe oh, there's you collected? Wow. I mean, there, there's so many. Um, Ozzy Smith was one of my favorite players, the Wizard of Oz. Vince Coleman, who was the stolen base champ for probably five or six years running and, and would steal you know 80 to 100 bases a year was one of my favorites and was a was a great guy and I, I've gotten a chance to know him uh, as an adult and you know talk about you know amazing but you know any player that played from the, the 70s and 80s and maybe early 90s were just you know unbelievable Eric Davis was was one of my favorites Eric the Red we called him <laughs> and, um, you know, just there's so many. Pete Rose was one of my favorites. Dusty Baker, who's my godfather, was was a favorite. There's so many. 
Jerry Royster, you know, Rick Sutcliffe, Lee Smith. You know, these guys were just, you know, so good to me as a kid and, and had such a huge impact on me uh, as a as a player. Um, just unbelievable. And I still have their cards today. And, and some of them I have, you know, game-used memorabilia. So I have a game-used Ozzy Smith hat that he signed for me. You know, bats from Ryan Sandberg, uh, Gary Sheffield, you know, just such a cool collection. And, you know, one of the the really nice things of having a father who played is my father collected a certain amount of memorabilia throughout the years. So I have balls signed by uh, Bob Gibson, uh, Roy Campanella, uh, wow. Negro League players like uh, Ted Double Duty Radcliffe, right? Just uh, amazing things. Really, really cool stuff. All right. Now, now that you piqued our interest, I'm going to put pressure on you. You got to have one thing that above all of the things that we're lucky, we're seeing some of this behind you right now uh, on the podcast, which by the way is available through video as well if you're interested. Is there one thing, one thing above all the paces of memorabilia you have that is most important to you? Oh, wow. There, there are so many really, really cool pieces uh, that I have that I've been fortunate enough to acquire and collect over the years. But there's, there's one piece that really, really stands out and is near and dear to my heart because it was given to my father. And I think it was right around my 36th or 37th birthday sometime before I retired my father then gifted it to me. And it is a really authentic game used for probably, it looks like probably three or four years, Willie Mays glove. Wow. And as a center fielder, it doesn't get any better than owning a Willie Mays glove or maybe a Ken Griffey Jr. glove. You know, those two guys, you know, iconic legends within a game, but you, when you think of Willie Mays, you think of the best catch that's ever made. And so to have one of his game used gloves that was gifted from Willie to my father, who played with him in San Francisco when he was with the Giants, and my father gifted it to me years later, it's, it's a pretty special piece. And for me, irreplaceable. Uh, and look, at the end of the day, these are just things, right? Like we, we all know, you know, the most important things are our are, are relationships and uh, family and, and the moments that we share together. But but if we're talking about memorabilia and that, that single, just unreplaceable piece, it, it doesn't get much better for me than a, uh, a Willie Mays glove. And I would say a, a very close second is uh, one of those, those black lacquered, uh, with pine tar on it, Pete Rose game used bat wow. that I have that is really, really special, really cool. I think, gee, uh, the memories uh, that this game brings us and the, uh, us being fortunate enough to be in the game where you meet people that really resonate. And, and obviously, through all of these stories that you're telling us, uh, the personalization that your dad woven in, in your aspect of your career, his career, is fascinating. I was telling a story to Mike the other day that uh, when you spend enough time in this game, you meet people that make a huge impact on you. 
I have Jimmy Reese right here. He's one of them uh, mm. with the Angels. Um, I said the story the other day, and I'll never forget it because you mentioned Ozzie Smith, one of my greatest teammates I've ever had. We're playing a playoff game, and all of a sudden behind us, through all the reporters and everyone that was on the field, we were taking batting practice. He turns to me, and I felt someone was on the field that was bigger than the game. And I turn around, and it's the late, great Hank Aaron. And, oh, wow. And I started, I started getting nervous, and I'm getting ready for batting practice. We're in the next group. And I was fortunate enough to be in Ozzie Smith's group. And, he's, and I look at him, and he must have seen the reaction on my face. He said, have you ever met him? And I said, no. And he said, grab a ball and come with me. So I grabbed this baseball that, that's close to me, and I go over, and I was like a little kid in the candy store. Yeah, and, uh, that interaction with him, I was nervous. I was I was excited. I had all of those emotions that you go through and you say, this is royalty of baseball. And I, I love to hear your perspective on this, because meeting that situation, it'll never leave my mind. But you've had plenty of those situations. What is the one guy that you felt like you had to meet or you were afforded to meet that made the greatest impact of you? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a tough question and a really good question. I've met so many influential players throughout my time, my experience in the game. And, and we're talking about, you know, I was born in 74. So, you know, growing up in San Francisco, having those years with the Giants, and then all the way, you know, through, through my retirement, this is, you know, 37 years in the game at that point when I retired. So, you know, you mentioned Mr. Aaron. I've you know, known him since the early 70s when my father signed as a free agent. Uh, Mr. Aaron was one of the, uh, was part of the contingency with the Braves that recruited my father to come there and talk about the benefits of playing for the organization and, and how they were rebuilding, but they wanted my father to be a part of it. And so I have uh, had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Aaron on many occasions, but you, you talk about uh, Ozzie Smith, some of the, the icons and Hall of Famers of the game. I, I was fortunate enough to meet uh, a handful of Negro League players during during my career uh early on uh, in the minor leagues I, I think i was with san diego there was a promotion going on one day and the ranch and cucamonga quakes brought in ted double duty radcliffe and you know they called him double duty because he they he played double header and i think he would catch one and pitch another wow which was why they called him double duty but amazing and so I didn't know what the Negro Leagues was until I was maybe 12 or 13. And I, I remember my father mentioning and hearing him in conversation. We were at the house and he was talking about how African Americans at a certain point weren't allowed to play the game. And at 12, I remember hearing this conversation. I remember thinking, huh? Like I just, it never occurred to me. Never occurred to me, Mark. So I, I had no idea. And so my dad said, yeah, Junior, there was a time when Black players weren't allowed to play the game. And I asked him, my ne very next question was, well, where'd they play? 
And he said there was a league called the Negro League, and they had their own league, and that's where they played. And my very next question after that was, well, who was the first? And that is where my father taught me about Jackie Robinson. And my father had a, a book, this huge coffee table book, and it was about the Negro Leagues. And so there were these, these beautiful sketches of all these different players from uh, James Cool Papa Bell uh, to Josh Gibson, Satchel Page. And so uh, below these sketches, it would tell a little bit of a story about their career. And so my, when my father pulled out this book, that was my first um, experience of learning about the Negro Leagues, the history of the Negro Leagues, the talent that existed in the league, how it was a faster paced game and how there were quite a few players that had the talent uh, to play in the major leagues, but unfortunately were born at the wrong time and weren't able to play in the major leagues. And, um, you know, look, I, I remember it, it giving me this uh, kind of profound sadness about uh, that there were these guys who, who had the talent to play the game but weren't allowed to play it. And so when I met uh, players from the Negro Leagues, uh, later in my career, I was able to meet Buck O'Neill. And wow. so, you know, when you mention, you know, a handful of players who just were mind blowing to me, you know, those two players, Buck O'Neill, uh, Ted Double Duty Radcliffe, those guys were just unreal. Because when I think about how much they loved the game and how much they still loved it in spite of the racism that they experienced, it hadn't diminished their love and appreciation for the game. That had such an impact on me. It, it really you know, gave me perspective as a young man and, and gave me drive to think that, listen, if these guys could deal with everything that they dealt with throughout their career and still have the passion the love and dedication remain undiminished, certainly I can go out and give my best effort during these times and, and give my all because there were certain people who just didn't have the opportunity. How could I not go out and, and give my all and be prepared and give my best effort after just meeting these men, right? The history uh, of the game Clearly extraordinary, but it's not lost on any of us just how deeply you emphasize its impact on your personal um, journey and, and what your father was able to bring in the way of knowledge and experience to you. When you're going through your own career, and you, like a lot of athletes, right, you're caught up in the moment, you're aware of history, but in the moment, you're worried about that next at bat, that next game, that next pitcher you're facing. It seems to all come together for you in that 2006 season. We opened the podcast talking about the catch, but it was really just a fraction of what you did that season, Gary. 313 average, 19 homers, 79 RBIs, and you make the all-star team. What did that mean to you when you consider the historical context of you being an African-American player in this league, making the all-star team, your dad's history in the game? What was that moment like for you? You know, I Obviously, uh, a really special moment, right? A moment of, of pride and finally feeling like I arrived in, in 2006. But really, you know, that transition and uh, matriculation, uh, if you will, into finally 
I guess, uh, making good on, on the talent that I had, right? All the, the wealth of talent, that, you know, speed and switch hitting and having a little bit of power and being a really good defensive player. That transition as a hitter started to come, uh, started to kind of bear some fruit in 2004. I signed with, I think I'd been traded to Atlanta, signed with the Atlanta Braves. And I happened to be put into the same hitting group as Chipper Jones. And I was brought in, I was going to back up Andrew Jones. And, but I remember that spring training in, in the group was Andrew Jones, Chipper Jones, and, and one other player, but Chipper Jones, another hall of fame talent. And I was the type of uh, player who, who like to watch other players and figure out what it is that they do to have the amount of consistency and, and success that they have. And so I remember watching Chipper Jones. He was around my size, 6'3", switch hitter, right? Bigger guy, long arms, uh, but it had, you know, one of the greats of the game, just had, had an amazing career. And getting put in the same hitting group with him, I started to watch everything about him. And I started from the ground up watching him in the cage. And he had such a great tempo and, and slow tempo. And so, listen, in baseball, in, in order to really have bat speed, you know, we talk of ha about having, you know, slow feet and quick hands. And Chipper Jones was the epitome of that. But I also noticed his toehold. So when I'd walk into the batting cage after he had walked out, his toehold, his location of his foot relative to home plate was so much closer than mine. Like it was literally maybe six inches closer. That That's a large amount when we're talking about plate coverage. And so I, I kind of noticed that. And so I started tinkering after watching him for maybe two and a half, three weeks, tinkering with my location. And I opened up my stance a little bit. And so, you know, I, I toyed with this, um, with a version of copying Chipper Jones open stance, but without the toe tap, I, you know, bring my hands back and then come close. But it gives the pitcher the perception that you're not as close to the plate as you are, right? But it also gives the hitter, you know, the opportunity to have, because you're a little bit more open, both eyes on the plate. And so, uh, Mark, you'll understand this, like any adjustment you make, you know, when you start trying to make an adjustment during spring training, it doesn't work, right? Yeah. Like it, it was, it was a mess. And I, long story short, I went out and probably hit 170. I was hitting 170, 180 during spring training, but I felt like I had way better plate coverage. I can see the ball better. I had better pitch recognition. And so I was going to stick with it. And I'll never forget this. My dad calls me one morning during spring training, late in spring training. And he says, hey, Junior, what's, you know, what's going on at the plate? I said, Dad, I, I know I'm hitting 180, but I actually feel good. I'm seeing the ball well. And, you know, don't worry about it. He goes, well, listen, you know, you better get your stuff together because they're not going to, you make it 1.3 million, they're not going to be paying you 1.3 million to be hitting 180 during spring training. I'll tell you that much, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I said, Dad, 
don't worry about it. I'll be fine. I got it under control. My swing feels good. Well, a week later, I got that tap on the shoulder. <laughs> they said, uh, you know, uh, Junior, uh, Bobby Cox and John Sherholtz want to talk to you. And, you know, when you get that, that message, that tap, early in the morning in spring training, you know it's not, not going to be good. You, you, you know you've either been traded or you're about to be released. And so I ended up getting released. But I really, you know, it was unfortunate because I just didn't have enough time to work out the timing of my new stance and, and swing that I kind of copied uh, from Chipper Jones. But I ended up signing after I got released, maybe four or five days later, I signed with the Texas Rangers and I was paired up with the great Rudy Jaramillo, who was mm -hmm. our hitting coach in Texas. And so that led that adjustment that I made. Rudy liked it. I told him, you know, how I felt about it. Rudy tinkered with it just a little bit. And I was off to the races. And this kind of gives you an idea of how amazing, you know, life is and how amazing and how funny the game works sometimes. If I had figured out that swing a little earlier, I would have undoubtedly sat behind Chipper, uh, not Chipper Jones, but Andrew Jones in center field for the next two years. Andrew played almost every day. So I really wouldn't have got much playing time in those two years. But because my timing happened to not be good during spring training and Dwayne Wise and Damon Hollins, who were a left-handed hitter and a right-handed hitter, were going off during spring training. Atlanta decided to save some money and, you know, I was probably making double what they were making together. And so they released me, but it worked out great because I ended up going to Texas and had the opportunity to work out the kinks a little bit in that swing with Rudy Jaramillo. And I was off to the races, which led to, you know, some solid, really solid years in 2004 and 2005. And then that big year in 2006, which, you know, we were just speaking about and how amazing it was to, to get to that point. That doesn't even happen without that release uh, by Atlanta. And you know those 2004 and 2005 with the Texas Rangers that led up to you know, all, the, all the talent and experience and most importantly, opportunity coming together. So I had a chance to play, but to you know, make that all-star team in 2006 was just, you know, the culmination of, of a lot of my dreams come true. I watched my father play in the All-Star game in 78. And so to, to make the team as, um, you know, on my own, right, I had earned it and I had worked really hard because it hadn't been uh, a smooth transition into the league. I had my ups and downs and I, I had, uh, you know, some bumps and bruises along the way where, you know, some releases, you get traded or you get sent down. Uh, it's all part of the game, but it certainly makes it really, really sweet when you you get there and you have an amazing year like that. Um, I was actually I had made plans on the All Star break to go to Miami with my younger brother Dustin. We were <laughs> we were going to take a break, and I thought, hey, you know, why don't we fly out to Miami for a break? You know, fly out there for a couple days. I think we we might have been playing some interleague in Miami right after the break. So I thought. Ah. We'll take it to Miami, or maybe we were starting up in Tampa, something like that. But I got the call that uh, no, nope, uh, the plans have changed. You're going to be playing in Pittsburgh in the All Star game, and 
know, what of an experience to have my family there in Pittsburgh and to see some of those, uh, those Pittsburgh great players there reconnect with uh, some of the Dave Parkers and introduce them to my son who had, you know, never met him at the time. What a great experience. Well, you think about it, G. Um, <clears throat> your your teammate gets the big hit against Trevor Hoffman, your former teammate. Yeah. Uh, that wins the game in Pittsburgh. Uh, also, I want to mention, too, that early morning tap that you got in Atlanta. I think everyone that goes through this game ends up getting one of those taps or some bad news. And it formulates the rest of your career. And I think just taking you into that All-Star Game experience, Rudy Jaramillo, so many different layers get you to a point where you go to the Angels, you're a Southern California guy, as you mentioned, and you sign a big contract with the Angels. That had to be a culmination yeah. of so many great things in your career to be able to do that and also go to two postseasons with the Angels. Speak to what that uh, felt like uh, to end your career like that. Yeah, it was, you know, it was a point in my life where I felt like I was ready to, to play in a bigger market. I was ready for the challenge. I, I really, my goal was to win a World Series. And, you know, look, I had accomplished a lot to that, uh, up to that point, but playing in the American League West against the Angels, I mean, they were the creme de la creme of the American League West. And they gave us fits in Texas. And I thought they were really, really close to winning a, a World Series and winning a championship. And so it, it, I had, when it came down to it, two teams that I was debating on signing with. And one was the San Francisco Giant. The other was the LA Angels of Anaheim. And, you know, I was so conflicted and torn. The money wasn't going to be the issue because the money was the same, same amount of years, same amount of money. But I made a decision to sign with L.A. because I thought they were closer to a World Series based on where they uh, their previous success, the organization and where I thought they were headed. And and I thought I was finally ready to go back home and play in California. So I was born in San Francisco. But when my dad signed a free agent deal, we moved back to L.A. So I had really grown up in L.A. And uh, Mark, you know, it, it's a different type of pressure when you're playing at home, the demands on yep. your personal time, yep. uh, the expectation of playing well, and, and the expe expectation of playing and w needing to win. And a championship, you know, if it's not a championship, then you didn't accomplish your goals. But I was ready for that. I was 32 or 30, I think 32 when I signed the deal. So I was, I was ready for that, going to be 33. And, you know, it just goes to show that you never know because I signed with, with LA and we won the America League West three straight years, seven, eight, and nine. And, you know, you talk about, you know, we fell short of the ultimate goal, but the experience of playing in the playoffs and celebrating with, with men that you've developed a, a genuine bond with uh, and, and set goals with, it, it's really special. And, you know, when I look back now, the experience uh, has had such a huge impact on my life. The, the friendship that I've made here in, in Anaheim, you know, I, I, I talked to Garrett Anderson probably a couple times a month. We golf together. Justin Spire, who is our setup guy, lives yep. down the street. You know, we still speak. And, and really ironic, I talked about 
having identical deals and my goal to win a World Series, but having identical deals from the Angels and from the San Francisco Giants. Well, the Giants went out and, and won, I think, two World Series titles <laughs> during the five years of my deal. So, you know, I, I will never dispute the, uh, the importance and the impact that the relationship that I built here in L.A., and the opportunity to come back and play in front of my my grandparents and family. My grandparents came to my games every night here with the Angels, and I'm forever grateful and uh, and thankful for that experience. But a World Series or two would be nice too. Uh, <laughs> and, and certainly, <laughs> certainly, I, I got that decision wrong as far as you know who was closer to the title. And you know, all credit due to the San Francisco Giants. Uh, you know storied organization and, uh, and they went out and got it done. And it traded to the Mets and uh, you play a little bit longer. You try again with the Reds. And when it's all said and done, there you are in your mid to late thirties, a young man yeah. in the real world, yeah. uh, getting in your longer in the tooth years as a baseball player. Yeah, when did it occur to sure. you? When did it occur to you? Or what was that like? I know you talked about this early in the podcast about having uh, some kind of mental planning going through conversations mm-hmm. you'd had with your father, but yeah. Sometimes, like they say, the end still comes suddenly. What, what, yeah. what was that like for you? How did you know it was over? You know, I don't think it was so sudden for me. Um, you know, I, I finally got traded to New York, and, you know, it, it didn't work out there. I, I think Carlos Beltran was hurt, and they wanted me to kind of be a stopgap in case Angel Pagan wasn't ready uh, I, of course, like like any veteran player, you want to go back to starting and being great. And, you know, but sometimes the organization has their plans. And the truth is, as a player, you know, 36, 37, we're not the player that we, we once were. And because as an athlete, you're always taught to believe and have the ultimate confidence and, and believing that I didn't get it done tonight, but tomorrow's the day and you wholeheartedly believe that because of that athletes are always the last to know that they don't have it anymore right <laughs> like it's just that it's not there right it's kind of like that that old boxer right who kind of stays around a little bit too long and and he'll tell you after the fight in the interview that he still got it and he, he swears that it's still there he just had an off night and he's going to go back and train even harder and he'll be back to get it done but you know eventually you realize that you know it's just it's not there and so that transition you know I was starting to feel it and uh you know there to me there's a beauty in in retiring and coming to the realization that this part of your life uh is is going to be no more and and I was ready for the transition mentally I, I had tools in place to help me through that transition and look, not everyone gets a chance to go out like like Derek Jeter goes out, right? Mm-hmm. You, you play your whole career, win championships, have a storied career, Hall of Fame career, and and go out on a game-winning hit. Uh, you know, for me, I was playing with Cincinnati, so you alluded to me kind of giving it one more try. I was in AAA. And really, I just wanted to prove to myself that I still had it. I didn't want to end my career, you know, hitting 180 or 200 in New York and have that be the memory. So I, I tried to ramp it up one more time. I went out. I, I think they wanted me to sign up for the rest of the season. 
I told, I can't remember who the GM was at the time with the Reds, but I told him I'd sign up for a month. And if you didn't see what you needed to see, then, you know, that'd be it. And so I went out, played really well. And, you know, if you're a veteran player, you're hitting around 350, 340, and, you know, you've signed kind of like a month contract and they haven't called you up, you know, you know, you kind of know they've got some other mm-hmm. plans. And so I finished out that, that month. And I had a couple of my buddies, a couple of my friends fly into Gwinnett, Georgia to, to watch me play. Cause I kind of felt like I was going to hang it up after that. I had a great series and, uh, and I remember making a really good catch in maybe one of the day games before my last game. And, you know, it was, uh, I turned my back on a ball, ball got hit over my head, turned my back on it, you know, made a dead beat run to center field and looked up and I couldn't see the ball. Sun was in my eyes. And so I, I backed up just a little bit. I saw it come down and made this unbelievable over the catch head, uh, over my head catch. And, you know, when I think about that last series, my last time playing, like that catch has remained with me. There was something kind of uh, beautiful about, you know, walking off into the sunset on my own terms having a couple of my buddies in town to see it. We, we went out that next night. I think I went two, two for four or three for four the next night. They didn't call me up and I called my agent. I said, you know, I'm ready for a break. And I went and had a drink with my boys. And I, I told them, I was like, you know, I don't know that I'm going to retire for sure, but my, my gut says that I've just played my last game. And, and for me, there's a beauty in it because you're going out on your own terms, you know? Yeah, and the beauty is uh, obviously making that catch the day before you retire and also yeah. the, the beautiful catch that you described in 2006. Um, how fitting. And, and, and it's an ending that is to be proud. Um, yeah. You transition yeah. to this, G. I think it's, it's really interesting. Um, a, a great question that we always ask is, what's next for Gary Matthews Jr.? What's going on with your life? And what uh, uh, piques your interest moving forward? Yeah, so really fortunate my my maternal grandfather was in commercial real estate and so growing up i not only had this uh impact right and tutelage from my father but from my grandfather as well on the business side and so he loved you know purchasing raw land he owned strip malls i developed a love for architecture and design and and so in real estate and so i i own some coastal real estate properties that I rent out, got a place in New York that I rent out. And then I'm also, you know, part of that group of players that invest in, you know, small business hotels. And so, you know, these are things that I was familiar with at a really young age, right? I'd go, uh, go to meetings with my grandfather. We'd sit down with banks and talk interest rates and, and hear about the different deals that he's go- got going on. As a kid, you don't understand the terminology that you're hearing, but, it becomes familiar over time. And so I, I learned how to interact, you know, with, with bankers at the time. You know, this is the time now we do everything online, but right. you know, there was a time when you had to sit face-to-face with a banker and negotiate your interest rates and deals. And, and so uh, I love real estate. I love architecture. And so I always say I do enough to, to stay busy and not enough to get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I really love, uh, love business. I love real estate. Uh, I love, you know, the art of getting a deal done and searching for deals. And, and obviously as a player, you, you make a certain amount of money during your career. 
And I'm a guy who's been really hands-on in my portfolio. So I do a lot of research on finance, research on the on the stock market and research on crypto and all the new things that are going on. You know, I basically take all these things that, that I learned as a player, all these tools that I have to succeed and apply them to my business life. And uh, I've been really fortunate to, to make the transition uh, from, from the game, but I had a lot of help, a lot of, a lot of tools and a lot of resources uh, from players, players like you, right. Who, who were some people who really kind of, you know, were good to me and, and gave me the truth and taught me about preparations. I mean, you had one of the, I, I argue it's the toughest position in all of sports to come off of a bench, face a setup guy or a closer with a guy standing on second base or third base and, and have to have success doing it. You know, you, you, you yourself have been one of the historical greats and I know you've always been humble about it, but the numbers say different. The numbers say that you're one of the historical greats at something that is just notoriously difficult to do. And so I've taken, you know, lessons from people like you and, and applied it to, you know, what I do in some shape, form, or fashion. And I'm, I'm thankful for guys like you. I think it's important to give people their flowers while they're here instead of posting about them when, when something happens yeah. to them. So, you know, Mark, thank you for your influence. Thank you for, for treating that, that young 23, 22-year-old version of me with, with respect, but also uh, expectations of, of how I was to handle myself as a professional. I'm, I'm Really grateful for that. Thank you. Oh, I appreciate the kind words too, G. I mean, you know this because you lived it uh, from day one with your dad and all the experiences you guys you shared today. Uh, this game is great because of the people that have influ influenced us in our careers. And we're just a, a part of the great game of baseball. So uh, that's the beauty of this podcast. It also yeah. is the beauty of Gary Matthews Jr. and his particular story in the limelight of a very successful dad, but also, buddy, applying everything to the game of baseball and beyond. I think that is spectacular. So I appreciate the time that you gave us. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I love this game. And, you know, one of the great aspects of this game as a former player now is to be able to share some of these stories and to hopefully not only share these stories with fans and give them some insight into some of these memories that they have about us as players, uh, but also individuals, and to also impact this young generation players that are coming up. There's some great ones. When you look at uh, Guerrero Jr., Tatis, and uh, Dante Bichette's son, Bo Bichette, you know, there's such a, a great wealth of talent uh, who's coming up. Is a, the game, as we say, always moves on. And uh, I just feel fortunate to have played a really small piece in, in the history of this game. It's, uh, it's really special. Now, the game's better because you were in it. The game's better because your father was in it and because you pay attention to the history of the game. And I love your line there. Give them the flowers while they're still here. Giving people the credit they deserve before it's too late or you miss that opportunity. Staying busy and staying out of trouble. That's your mantra going forward. <laughs> right? Joan, thank you so much. Yeah, this is a great opportunity to, to be on your platform and connect with fans, but also connect with friends and, and share some of these stories that fans 
may not have heard. It's uh, really cool. Congratulations to both of you and, and wishing you guys continued success. Thank you, Gary, and uh, best to you as well. Gary Matthews, Jr., our guest on this episode of Major League Beginnings. 12-year career in the big leagues with seven different teams, 2006 All-Star. And I will remind folks again, get to YouTube, Google it, whatever is your methodology, and grab that catch from 2006 when he was with the Rangers. Arguably one of the best you will ever see. Gary, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. Well, folks, thanks for checking out Major League Beginnings presented by Bet Online. And if you had as much fun as we did, please go ahead, hit the subscribe button anywhere you usually download your podcast from. You pick the platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, whatever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.